This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Greetings, I'm Trisha Keffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books and Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. And I have three special guests for you today on the show. The book is The Power of Existing Buildings, Save Money, Improve Health, and Reduce Environmental Impacts by Robert Schroff, Craig Stevenson, and Beth Eckrode published by Island Press in 2019. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Hey, Trisha. How are you doing today? Hi, Trisha. Excellent. Let's start with always my first question. Please uh, tell the audience a little bit about yourself and your credentials. Uh, Sure, I'll start. Uh, This is Beth Eckenrode. Um, So my background is big companies and big business. So I come come to the construction industry on a circuitous path. My background is mostly strategy and um, business management, general management, and I was with big companies before I set out on my own, uh, and I had a real itch to scratch with regard to figuring out how to take some of the most gnarly problems we have in the world and bring some kind of order and solutions, some technology and creativity uh, to develop uh, approaches to disruptive innovation that would change the way we think about different aspects of our lives. And so I took kind of a career's worth of skills and tools and brought it into the um, built environment and found these two knuckleheads and we decided to write a book. Hi, Hi, Richard. This is Craig Stevenson. I'm excited to be here with you today. My background is um, I have a few master's degrees. I'm credentialed in virtually every well-known and used um, sustainability certification program in the United States. That's about probably seven of them, maybe eight. Um, I spent the last 25 years, 25, 30 years of my career in the uh, general construction building uh, industry. And I built projects all over the East Coast, commercial, light industrial, institutional projects for 25, 30 years. Uh, I was always an early adopter into sustainability for the built environment. And I practiced a lot of uh, lead projects years ago. And I felt as though there's got to be a a better way to get performance from buildings. And that's kind of what drove me to practice high-performance buildings, and then uh, it led us to uh, thinking about writing this book, which uh, we're very proud of. Hello. Hello. This is Robert, and I'm at a high level, really, I want to have a global conversation about sustainability. 
And my path through this was the academic route. So I'm the one that brings the pie charts and the bar graphs and those things to the conversation sometimes. And the others have to tell me to back off on that. But my work really is in environmental management systems and performance measurement. My background work was in operations management, supply chain management. I've worked with the Department of Defense. I've done consulting work, and I've been out trying to solve problems basically for the last 20 years that involve how we include environmental, social, and financial performance within our decision-making. And fortunately, I ran into both Craig and Beth and were able to come together in this project to find opportunities for buildings to be at the crossroads for this to happen. Since we all live within them and work within them, it was a perfect place for me to continue the conversation about sustainability in the built environment. Oh, excellent. I think that's uh, so appropriate right now. So, uh, so what was your motivation for writing this book? So I'll, I'll take that, but I'm going to pitch to Robert. And as I pitch to Robert, I'm going to just give, give, uh, give a little bit more insight. Um, Robert really was the one who came to us and said, you know, we should write a book. And the combination of the two, uh, what we do, and, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that later in, in the use of technology and Robert's deep academic background made the perfect combination. How he came up with that idea, though, I'm going to pitch to him. Um, you know, Robert is, is quite, um, bashful because what he didn't tell you is that he is a leading thought um, provoking uh, educator at Duquesne University in their sustainability MBA program, which is one of the highest ranked sustainability MBA programs in the world. And so when you think about the built environment and building performance, uh, you have to think about Duquesne University. And Robert is a driving force in how we think and, and now the rest of the world thinks via our book about buildings and, and creating sustainability and resilience in buildings for uh, decades and centuries to come. So, but I'll pitch to Robert on how he had the idea because he brought it to us. All right. Thanks, Beth. Yeah, the idea really came through starting a design competition with my students. So I wanted MBA students to be able to look at the world in which they're going to be going into. And instead of seeing Dilbert land and cubicles and things like that, every building they drive by or every building they step into, I figured was an opportunity for them to think about every dollar invested in that space could actually have a return that would have an environmental impact and health and human productivity impacts too. So we started oh, <clears throat> about 13 years ago, I guess, 12 years ago, and doing this within a, a lead um, for, format, if, if you want to call it that, and I guess to have a point system behind it, got students involved in teams to look at their own building, a business school, to then figure out how they could better invest in that building and have different kinds of returns on that versus just a dollar return. And the impetus for the book then was to capture some of our thinking, capture best practices that were happening within the industry, and why, or ride out this wave of a trend that was moving us beyond lead into high-performance buildings and the green building environment in general. So we were fortunate enough to be in Pittsburgh, where there's a lot of this happening. We have a strong green building alliance here. There's grassroots needs for this, where my students want this, and they want to have a better understanding of it. So I created a space and a place as a living laboratory where we could come together and try to throw our ideas at things and then have judges from industry, from facilities on campus, um, architects, construction industry, engineers, and have them all help assess those teams' thoughts and ideas to try to make some of them a reality. Craig was part of that process. He's an alum of our business school. 
Educating University. And it was through that process that we kept talking about this. Craig was always um, coming into class as an invited speaker. And the genesis of that came through. How do we make MBAs start to think about the world differently so business people can have a building and a high-performance building perspective of these spaces? And then we figured we need to capture this in a book and then make that book available to others so we can share best practices. Oh, excellent. Well, let's start with the first question. Uh, what is the greatest challenge that you find when you're trying to renovate an existing building? You know, how, how do we do this? Let's start there. Craig? Yeah. Know? So, okay. Um, this is really, like Robert said, I mean, the SMBA program is built around project-based experience learning and what we did is we just turned Rockwell Hall the home of the SMBA at Duquesne into a learning laboratory um, we did it first by just challenging ourselves and our, our the students on how to think about the building and answer the question you just asked you know Rockwell Hall is a building that was built in 1950 it's got all the problems of existing buildings the floor decks run out and touch the outside walls that's called a thermal bridge the systems are at life cycle mechanical heating cooling ventilation systems are all life cycle the windows are at life cycle i mean it's got all these problems that every old building in the world has and we looked at that and said well wait a second that's not a problem that's an opportunity because the opportunity then becomes to start thinking about the building differently we could either replace everything that we're talking about in terms of windows all of our life cycle uh, issues in the building we can replace them in kind <clears throat> and have the same results when we're done, or we could do something better. And then the question started becoming, well, how much better? You know, how can I get to zero in a 50-year-old building in terms of energy consumption and carbon emissions? And that's where the challenge started. So we started saying, okay, well, what's out there? And when we started um, figuring it out is that the secret is you have to look at buildings holistically. You cannot look at buildings incrementally and think that you're going to solve the problems by simply going in there replacing systems. You have to figure out what how do I reduce the loads of those systems? Meaning I, I got to touch my envelope and make my envelope more thermally efficient, have an air barrier. Uh, and once I do that, then how do I sequence in behind that smaller systems because my loads just got reduced? And that's the pathway that you have to challenge yourself to start thinking about. So using natural triggers of life cycle deferred maintenance, natural renovations, re uh, recognizing sequences on when I have to do that, there becomes a master plan that you have to build for these buildings. And that's the challenge that we figured out when we started doing this. And the technology exists today, fortunately, for us to create that master plan before we swing one hammer. And that, was the, that was the impetus to the book when we figured it out and we looked at each other and said, okay, this makes a lot of sense to us and we can get to zero. Um, and we've laid out all the tenants in the book. We need to really kind of develop this a little further into, into the production that we have. So Trisha, uh we don't have, as Craig said, we don't have a technology problem. We have an attitude issue. And, you know, if we're going to make the changes to the environment and reduce and minimize the impact we have on the environment from a, from a building standpoint, we have to change the paradigm. We have to think about buildings differently. We can't look at a building and say, well, if we can renovate this building for $12 million, but we can build it new for $12 million, we should build it new. We should take it down and build it new. That's a prevailing attitude. It's a prevailing thought process today. And we want to turn that on its head and say, if all things are equal, we should absolutely be investing in the existing building. 
that's the way we change the impact we have on the on the environment in both energy and uh, uh, carbon emissions. So I just wanted to build on Beth's thought and just add a couple of things to consider. Um, Number one, 80 percent of the buildings that stand today will be with us in 2050. So we're not going to build our way out of this problem. We don't have enough rooftops to use photovoltaics and other renewable strategies to renewable our way out of this problem. We have to find a solution for our existing buildings. And that's really what the driving factor was. And then you consider the other factor that buildings consume 45 to 47 percent of the energy in the United States. So now, you know, we've recognized that existing buildings um, are somewhere that's low hanging fruit. It's somewhere we need to figure it out. And that's why we thought using Rockwell Hall as a learning laboratory to figure out how to transform that building into zero energy building was was um, it's the next wave of really the macro trend in sustainability. Yeah, and I can I can build on that too in terms of the challenges are that people just don't recognize the opportunity because they've never really been pre- presented with this other than a utility bill. <clears throat> and if I think about and have my students and others think about 66% of all the energy we create in the United States is wasted. It goes away as heat or friction. When people come in and turn on the lights in a building, they never think about that whole infrastructure behind it, not only in the building, but all the systems that are connected to it. And if you were starting a new company, you had a hire, uh, you'd hired 100 people and let them work you know, for you for a year. And at the end of 12 months, you found out 66% of them basically sat around and did nothing but let out hot air. What would you do with that system? You'd fire those people immediately at the end of the year if you got that performance metric back. But that metric was coming at the end of a year. We know that our systems are inherently wasteful and there's a better opportunity to educate people about the spaces in which they're in, the systems that they are connected to, to make them much more beneficial for every dollar they spend on that, a better return on that in terms of the benefit. They're more wasteful in terms of their impacts on the environment. And also what people really overlook is that there's a human health and productivity opportunity that we really haven't tapped into. And that is a really big part of this opportunity. It's educating people that we can have systems and buildings that are much better than we've had in the past. Okay. So, uh, what about spending? Uh, you know, that's, that's an argument that always comes up, you know, how can we, um, do this without paying a premium or what is the, you know, cost long-term cost benefit analysis? You know, can we maybe, like you said, educate people and show them that really in the end of the day, that it really does make sense all the way around, excuse me, all the way around. Yeah. So the cost premium on this, um, What we're finding is that we're getting more and more to the point where we can do all of this at the same cost as just building a, a building to code. Um, we're finding that the environmental impacts on something help us and that the first cost and the financial return on investment and just financials is already good. So there's already a good payback on this. We take um, a lighting retrofit. Um, we can get about a five-year payback on LED lights versus some other systems that might have been in place before that. If we include the environmental impacts avoided by changing to the better system, we can bring that ROI down to about three and a half years. If we look at the human health and productivity impacts within that space, the returns are within four months. So your ROI comes down to four months. We're finding that the human health and productivity impacts are 10 times better than just the straight financials. And this is what people are not, not really in tune to in terms of the educational piece of this, is that when you buy a, a vehicle, right, a car, a combustion engine vehicle, if you drive that car for 50 years, you'll probably spend... just on the energy that goes into it for gasoline. But combustion engine vehicles are really inefficient. And that 81% of that 
gallon of gas every time you put it in the vehicle goes towards heat and friction, not towards movement of the actual vehicle. That's only about 19%. So over the course of 50 years of driving, you could spend $100,000 on that vehicle for gasoline and waste $81,000 of that. The same kind of analogy is for buildings that we're pouring more and more money into wasteful buildings, not just in the first cost, but in the operation and maintenance of them over time. And there's an opportunity for us to look at the total benefits involved in this so that we're not paying a premium. I can also add to that from my perspective and my experience in building buildings for for 30 years is that I can't tell you how many times I've gone into a building that's an existing building and renovated, you know, what I've got clean, you know, total renovation of that floor. We deconstruct the outside walls at a value of like an R18, which is right around the code uh, performance of an outside envelope. And we reconstruct it at an R18. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've done that. It's the most frustrating thing in the world. We have the natural trigger of renovating that outside wall. I deconstruct it and reconstruct it in the same way. That's crazy. That's a definition of insanity. You know, the cost of insulation is always cheaper than the cost of systems. So when I'm deconstructing my R18 wall, why can't I reconstruct the wall to an R25? And the answer is because code only requires R18. So now all of a sudden we're caught building the worst building we're legally allowed to build because no one wants to think holistically about that building. So even if you go in and you you don't have triggers and sequences, you can still retrofit your building. And Robert has demonstrated through his financial modeling and through the book on how that pays. It absolutely pays. But if you don't believe that, at least believe that when you have natural triggers that you can do better. You don't have to build buildings to code. And there's so much value that you can extract from a building when you think about it holistically. So again, my experience in doing that for 25 years drove us to find better ways. And the data isn't just ours. Um, you know, the uh, Pennsylvania Housing Finance Agency in, in, uh, in Pennsylvania funds developers who want to make investments in affordable multifamily uh, buildings. And they did a, a study over three investment cycles, which were four years, but over three investment cycles, they, they tracked the performance of their investments, they included in their um, in their application process a standard called passive house. And passive house is a is an approach to building science where you drive to really ultra low energy. And so they put it in and gave extra points if developers could um, certify to passive house standards. And essentially what they learned over those three years is that there was a slight premium in the beginning, about a 5% premium in the beginning with teams that didn't have any experience. And then as they got up the experience curve, it actually ended up becoming a um, a uh, discount. They ended up, teams were able to actually uh, reduce the cost of producing a passive house building versus a traditional building. So... Uh, you talked about too about uh, architects and their scope of services. How do architects fit into all of this? So the architects, um, it's it's an interesting question. Well, they're essential. First and foremost, they're essential. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We need to say that. Um, you know, and I would refer to that as team building in general, right? So whenever you're considering um, going to a high performance building or a low or a low energy building, that architects typically are going to lead that process naturally. So, you know, 
their leadership skills on how to look at buildings holistically is going to be necessary, number one. Number two, architects naturally own the envelope. And we believe that, you know, there is a natural order of sustainability that we've defined in our book, talking about, you know, going after passive solutions first, maximizing them because it reduces our loads for mechanical systems. Then looking at active systems second, because I can then, once the loads are reduced, I can look to decouple those systems. I don't need a big box on the roof to do all my heating, cooling, and ventilation. I can start to decouple those systems and, and ventilate my buildings with a great heat recovery system and then heat and cool those buildings with other means. Um, and then renewables last, right? That's the natural order of sustainability. Architects naturally uh, lead that process because of the envelope because the envelope does pay. So having a, an architect who understands and respects building science is, is really essential to um, creating that master plan and then executing it. Yeah, I can build on that also by saying, if you think you can go out and just have this master idea that you're going to have a greener, high-performance building and then throw your idea over to someone else and just let them run with it, then you're really not even yourself part of the team and that this is a team sport and a full contact sport in that sense, and that a team needs to come together that are already familiar with these skills and the technology and what's happening within the built environment so that the team comes up with a better solution than any individual would have on their own. And the architects are an in integral part of that team. Yeah, it's a great point, Robert. I think there's an opportunity for architects today to become more differentiating in how they present their capabilities to building owners. And to Craig's point, all of that rests in, in our opinion, in the world of a high-performing envelope and understanding how to do that in a cost-effective way. So, you know, we do go out of our way to find architects that understand and appreciate the impact that the envelope has on the ultimate performance of a building. Because, you know, a lot of times uh, developers and building owners and architects talk about design. What we spend a number of chapters in the power of existing buildings driving to is this idea that design is only part of the part of the process. It's only half you're only halfway down the path when you when you create a high performing design. You have to get to performance and operations. Developers and owners are to the point where you know, they're not satisfied anymore with just a high performing design. Um, and they don't want to necessarily get a certification because they checked a bunch of boxes. They want to know that their building performed in operations the way it was designed. And for that, you need to have uh, a, an entire project team, to Robert's point, aligned and driving through the entire process to get to the results in operations. Well, I'll, I'll skip to a different. What about landscape architects? My master's degree is in landscape architecture. Can we fit in here somewhere, too? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Landscaping architects are absolutely part of the solution in terms of the overall team building, because when we are focusing, our book focuses a lot on energy and indoor air quality for buildings, right? So we define high performance in buildings through energy consumption, greenhouse gas emission reductions, and superior indoor air quality levels. With landscape architects, you get the whole conversation around water. And water is a major component of sustainability. Now, in the northeast part of the United States, we are very fortunate in that that resource is somewhat abundant for us, even in the southern part of the states on the east side of the country. But when you go out west, that commodity is is really not a uh, that resource is not a commodity. I mean, it's it's scarce. So 
when you talk about landscape architecture, then the question becomes, how can I um, capture stormwater, reuse it in the building? If I can't reuse it for potable, if I don't have those types of systems, can I reuse it for irrigation? Uh, can I reuse it for gray water to flush toilets and other means? And again, that's, that's a conservation discussion that has to be part of the bigger picture. Because when you, when you find the right team and you're looking at sustainability and high performance buildings, it's going to naturally go into other elements like materials for toxicity and embodied energy and water resources and biophilic um, opportunities. So absolutely, landscaping architects is part of the bigger picture. And we would say for you, Trisha, in as a landscape landscape architect and for others, you know, we would give you the same advice in terms of, you know, where the future is. We'd give you the same advice as we would give other architects. And that is, you know, once you decide your plan and you think about the design, consider how an owner or a project team would measure the performance and operations. So once everything is going and the building is occupied and life is is normal, how do you measure? whether or not that design that that landscape architect put together from a water standpoint is achieving its goals. Is it meeting the, the, the goals? And we would say that, you know, you can monitor and sensor and track a lot of things today because of uh, the internet of things and technology's capabilities. And once you build the building to have the proper infrastructure for energy and indoor air quality, the way we talk about it in the power of existing buildings, you have the infrastructure to also bring that information in for water. And so we would advise landscape architects to think about measurement and verification in the same way we do for energy and indoor. Yeah, absolutely. I was part of a team that was trying to look at a middle school and knocking down a 115-year-old building and putting up a new one. And the only thing people were focused on the teams, and this is an indicator early on, is they're only focused on costs. They're not looking at the entire system and bringing in integrated management to these teams. And the landscape architects were an afterthought for this. And some of the architects at the table even said, oh, we're including sustainability in this, but they hadn't included the full range of it because they were waiting for someone else to do that farther on down the line. The earlier landscape architects can be part of that team, be part of the solution and be part of what Beth was talking about, that measurement and verification. And they also get to be part of the verification of their skills being necessary to make that whole site better than it would have been otherwise. And almost do sort of a pre and post assessment to verify their value that they bring to the table when looking at this whole site, not just the inside of a building or its mechanicals. Sure. Okay. So uh, something else you mentioned a little bit earlier, you said something about, uh, I hadn't heard of this, the natural order of sustainability. Um, it, how does that relate to this conversation? Sure. So it's, it's uh, a thought process. It, it's, it, it's a phrase um, we either coined it or found it early on and latched onto it and kind of have made it part of everything we talk about. And it it somewhat underpins the building science of passive house. So the idea being that you want to think about your passive systems first. So instead of automatically, especially with an existing building, instead of automatically jumping to, you know, what, what do I have to do to replace my, my HVAC system? We say, answer that question in the context of what is, how is your envelope performing? Because if the idea is that you have a lousy envelope and it's porous, and you just keep pounding and pushing more, more heating or air conditioning through the building and it goes out the envelope of the building. Now we haven't gotten any more efficient. And so the natural order of sustainability says you always start with your passive systems first, your roof, your walls, your windows, um, and you make sure they're buttoned up real nicely. And then you uh, tackle your active systems. 
because you've spent the time on your envelope and you've gotten uh, more performance from your envelope, now you don't require the load management that you did before you buttoned up your envelope. So your active systems become smaller and more efficient, more affordable. Once you've tackled your passive systems and your active systems, now you're in a position to have a conversation about efficient renewables. So most renewables on their face fail financially because they're too big, because you have to have too much of them to offset um, a significant amount of energy. Once you reduce your energy consumption and you get it to a manageable level, now all of a sudden, you know, you have a renewable solution that's much more cost effective. And that's how buildings, especially existing buildings, can make their way to zero energy without breaking the bank um, in terms of investment. If you take it in the proper order and sequence. So we talk a lot about the sequence of operations. So there's a second level to the natural order sustainability, too. So natural order sustainability, passive first, active second, renewable last in the context of the building. But then it's also site over source. So when you think about site over source, site energy use intensity versus source energy use intensity, right? So if you think about that, what's the cheapest form of energy? It's the energy I never use. So we want to drive efficiency as far as we can based on building science before we offset with renewables. And if I do that, then all of a sudden, now my photovoltaic array becomes much more affordable. If you look at it from a pure carbon perspective, my carbon emissions are being reduced at the, at the maximum level, right? If I have a building that's using you know, 300,000 kilowatt hours of electricity a year, and I offset that with renewables, great. I've offset it with renewables, but the building's still using that much energy, right? So it's not really logical to build a pre-engineered metal building, which is probably the most inefficient building you can build, and put a really big PV array out there. That just doesn't make sense. Why not take the money on the PV array, build a better building, and go for efficiency first, and then offset later? That's the natural or sustainability. And I can't tell you how many projects we've been on where, you know, they lead with renewables first and it just doesn't, it's not logical. It just doesn't make sense to us. You're, you're leading with an active system that's going to break and it's going to require replacement in the future. Why not do it with passive measures first that don't break? Insulation is going to be there in 50 years. It just doesn't break. And I think the reason why lots of people lead with the renewables is because they've been able to tell stories or they've seen others tell stories about that in terms of their business, their NGO, or their location has no solar system put up on it so they can claim sustainability. But in reality, what we're talking about by doing passive first, and for people that live in homes, you can think about this on a per square foot basis of a thousand feet. If you could do really good passive approaches first, you might only need a hairdryer for every 1,000 square feet you have in your home to heat it. If you think about that as your heating system versus your HVAC system that you currently have and the cost differences of that, for every 1,000 square feet, the need of a hairdryer for that is kind of mind-blowing for some people, but that's the passive part of this to begin with. And then work on your active systems, which are the actual hairdryers, right? Or those things that could be reduced to be so small to then get to renewables in the end. How much or how many solar panels do you need to you know, operate a hairdryer? It's much, much smaller than if you would have started with those renewables first and poured a lot of money into that to begin with. And the paybacks for those things are more like 10, 12 years on down the line, depending on where you live in the United States and how much you pay for electricity. They're all good approaches on their own, but they're much better in terms of their impact when it's an integrated approach in the sequence that we've talked about in the book so that you get to the lowest cost approach to this by maximizing environmental impacts avoided and increasing your ROI overall. 
Robert, that's a great point. The only other thing I would add to this conversation around the natural sustainability is when you think about it from a resiliency standpoint, and that is becoming a major um, a major concern for a lot of um, municipalities, state, local, and federal, otherwise, um, with, with these natural events becoming more and more commonplace, when you think about resiliency, if you have a passive house, uh, even a single family or a building, um, and we lose power, that home is going to, you know, maintain thermal comfort for a week or two before it starts to move from that. And that's that's been well documented in terms of passive houses. Even the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers recognizes that. And after Katrina, when they had a major loss of life because they had no um, centers to bring people to and they were dying in the um, bringing to the, the stadium, is that they've now adopted passive house uh, for their um where their centers where uh, people are going to meet after natural events. Oh, that's great. Well, you know, now I'm going to, this is a little bit of curveball since I've got the world's leading experts here on this. Um, for me, I'm a small, I was a small homeowner and I was, I built a house and I, I really did want to go green, but that time, I mean, I didn't have my, my architecture degree and I asked my contractor, so, you know, I want to do green, but he kind of looked at me like I had three heads and, uh, and the architect, I didn't have the plans to, uh, to know how to do a gray water system or anything like that. What is just, you know, the small person going to do, let's just say I'm going to build a house again. And how do I do it? How do I get started? What do I do? Where do I get plans? Well, Robert uh, mentioned early in the, in the interview, I mean, that Pittsburgh's been extremely fortunate in that its NGOs and its um, its organizations that support this effort in Pittsburgh are are really outstanding, and they lead the charge on this. If you're in a community that doesn't have the resources, like say Pittsburgh may have, there are other resources. You can look to organizations, national organizations like the North American Passive House. Um, you can look to organizations. Um, like USGBC or well building, they can kind of give you um, some ideas and support on where to start looking for this. And if nothing else, you know, establish your own set of goals as a homeowner. And if you establish your own set of goals, you can then start to have conversations with the architects and builders, um, you know, and change the paradigm on, on building the code and racing to the bottom and, and, and looking for something better. So it, it really takes someone to do a little research, and there's plenty of information out there for them. Our book um, highlights a lot of those different organizations on, on those resources and where to turn to. So there is a lot of help out there. Yeah, within the book, we even go through a timeline of how those organizations have come up um, over the past few decades and to be where we are now. So it's like anything these days, right? We can Google it <laughs> to make it real simple, right? But do your homework and find those organizations around you that are already touting high-performance buildings or high-performance homes. And the organizations that are connected into making those things happen, they're open to having people come in. And we talk about the organizations here in Pittsburgh. You know, Their purpose in life is to go out and help people do this and to make these types of homes or buildings a reality. So Tap yeah. into that as much as possible, wherever you're located. The greatest thing that we can provide uh, as a team of thought leaders in this space is to give you or any homeowner or any building owner or developer the confidence to set the goals and ask and demand for the performance and, and, and get it in a way 
that doesn't break their bank that is a reasonable investment, um, if not if not on par with traditional construction, darn close to it. And um, you know that's what we're stri- striving to do, especially with the book, is tell the story of these are the technologies, these are the processes, this is the approach to take, and don't be bashful, don't be shy about saying mm, I want zero energy and I don't want a, uh, any carbon emissions. Don't be bashful about it. Set it as a goal, and um, you know, demand the, the performance from your team. Yeah, my MBA students and I do consulting projects at no cost for corporations, <clears throat> NGOs, cities, and we've even had whole countries approach us to do this. And part of what we do is baseline information, right? So we talk about this in the book. Also, you need to have an understanding of what kind of home you want, or what home you're already living in, and what your baseline is. And the nice thing about this is that there are teams like mine and my students that can go out and help organizations do this. But just like those organizations we mentioned here in Pittsburgh and other places around green buildings or high performance buildings, I also had at least three times now I've had at no cost because my utility companies help pay for it. Somebody come out and help pressurize my home, right? Do a blower door test on it at no cost, figure out my EUI. And then actually figure out my baseline information for what the home was because I purchased a home after it was already built. I wasn't part of the architectural planning for it, construction or anything. I came into it a year after it was on site. And because of that, I had better understanding now of how these resources can come to me to help me understand the home I'm currently in or the one I'd even want to build. And based on that, I'm now, and you know, Beth talked about having goals of zero. What a fantastic goal to have, right? To have zero impact, net, net zero buildings, you know, carbon neutral. These things are all reality given our current approaches to buildings, both commercial or residential. And, you know, I'm coming to you today from a a net positive home where I generate more electricity than I need for the home. And I offload about two megawatts a year for a car. And I can drive that same car I talked about earlier. Combustion engine vehicles would spend about $100,000 over 50 years to drive. E-vehicles, $10,000 for the same 50 years. 90% 90% cheaper to operate and think about homes that could be 90% or hundred percent cheaper to operate for the operational costs of your home over time. I've got homes around me in the neighborhood that I'm in right now that spend hundreds of dollars a month just on their utility bills for electricity. And it comes from a grid system that's mostly coal powered utilities. I can see actually between a couple of my homes across this cul-de-sac, the sixth worst polluted utility site in North America. It's a coal powered utility just down the river. And instead, I can create my own electricity and have this available to me at a cost that is right now 40% cheaper than my utility company. And I can own that and actually get paid to generate that electricity within the space. Hey, Trisha. Um, so just so I can throw a couple of resources out there, because I like to answer questions directly to give people some somewhere to go. Um, NAPHN, North American Passivus Network, just uh, converted its annual conference to a virtual conference. So if anyone is interested in looking at um, Passive House resources, that is a great conference. It's very, very affordable. I think it's under $100 for the virtual conference. It starts up in about four or five weeks. There's also a Passive House Accelerator. If you Google Passive House Accelerator, you'll find a website that is really, it's its just a grassroots website where a bunch of us experts in Passive House started uh, writing about our experiences and case studies and, and what can be done. I think if you follow those two resources first and foremost, you're going to start to figure out that there's a huge community out there of people that are solving the exact same problem that you're asking. 
And I have one, I have another question. You know, I like this uh, chapter nine. It kind of goes along with the conversation, you know, uh, the title, Existing Buildings, Can We Save the World? You know, you're never too old to save the world. Um, and uh, so what are your, your favorite case studies that uh, that can save the world? <laughs> it's, yeah, thank you. Thank you for opening that up. So <clears throat> funny story, right? Uh, our working title for the book was Can Existing Buildings Save the World, which ended up becoming uh, the title for Chapter 9. And the reason we fundamentally believe that based on what we're up against as a as as humanity and the problems we have to solve. And like Craig said, the fact that the buildings we have today are the buildings we're going to have for a very, very long time. We have to get our arms around the impact buildings can have and how, you know, we are able to solve some of our most gnarly issues by investing in existing buildings. And so we saved a lot of what we call kind of this aspirational thinking for chapter nine, because you know, we didn't want to come across as heretic, heretics. <laughs> We're so focused on math and science between Robert and Craig and I that we didn't want to come across as, you know, zealots. And so we kind of saved tying all of this together for chapter nine. And in chapter nine, we basically say, we've given you the map, we've given you the tools, we've shown you the technologies and the approaches to take a building and make it perform like new without having to pay a significant premium to do so. And then, so in chapter nine, we say, so what else does that mean? What's the, uh, is there a greater purpose? Is there an even bigger aha? And the bigger aha is absolutely, because what happens if we do this is we take on some of the threads that weave together many of the UN sustainable development goals that they've set specific to the built environment. And so the two threads that we, that we talk the most about and that we, that all, everything we've just talked with you about and everything that shows up in the book, it is, it drives towards two of those threads and that's fuel poverty and equitable indoor air quality. And, you know, you take a building and you drive it, uh, affordable multifamily. Uh, you take that and you drive it to almost zero energy. You've changed, uh, the way people spend their money. And uh, you take people out of fuel poverty and you put them into an environment where now they have the chance to have more equitable um, living conditions. Add to that the fact that all of the building science that we've talked about inuring to the benefit of, of energy also inures to the benefit of indoor air quality. The minute you button up your envelope and you drive to the proper uh, active system solutions, you have now tackled indoor air quality. And we've spent a little bit more time on energy than we have indoor air quality, but it's worth a couple of seconds. So the, the equivalent passive house standard for indoor air quality is reset air. It is the global um, thought leader in the world of indoor air quality. And what reset air says is, irrespective of what your outdoor air quality is, you should be able to have um, world-class indoor air quality. And they expect that um, buildings will continuously monitor that indoor air quality to ensure that it remains in performance. And so it's a different type of performance standard, just like Passive House. It requires that the performance be shown and proven in operations. And so Reset Air for us and Passive House are enablers of the way we tackle some of the world's uh, most difficult and most complex issues. And if we do all of these things well, um, we make a big difference. We'll, we'll take a, a, a big dent 
will make a big dent in in uh, in the UN Sustainable Development Goals as they as they've laid them out. Yeah, I can say that one of my favorite case studies, no matter what, is our business school. So Rockwell Hall is something that Craig and I have been kind of working on for years and involving those students in those design competitions and how they've morphed over time from a lead design competition to an energy management systems design competition to include what Beth has just now brought back into the fold, which is the indoor quality parts of this. And we can actually show, and even in my own home, you know, my indoor quality is typically two to three times better than it is outside the house. And you can find air quality information on your phone now. Smartphones can do this. Smartphones can be a dashboard to actually tie together information that's all around you. And we're doing the same things within Rockwell Hall and some of the other sites that Beth and Craig are working on in that we can create dashboards for people when they walk into that space. So as someone walks into our business school, they can see this on a 55-inch flat screen, the real-time information about the building's performance, energy consumption, water, indoor air quality measures, and we have five of them, and then also compare that to outside. So we can have a conversation when people walk into a business school about why are you showing me this data? I love the why question. Why? Because we can do better. Look, this is what it was last year or the previous year, and this is how we're bringing down energy consumption, reducing costs, and improving indoor air quality because health and human productivity can have a 10 times bigger impact than just reducing energy consumption. They're all related in different ways, and I've been involved in research that shows this in terms of life cycle assessments and taking electricity off of grids around different places in the world and how that helps humans, right? But here we are doing it in a business school with the people that are typically blamed for a lot of these problems that are happening in the world, right? When the financial markets collapse or what have you, but instead we can have these business leaders of the future think about the spaces that we spend 93% of our time inside of and better invest in them in the future to then have them map into the UN sustainable development goals. And our consulting projects with our students do this for every one of our clients. We show that the financial returns are good. And then there's a different story to tell that goes beyond the financials about how we can help with, and Beth was getting at this, no poverty, good health and well-being, and going on to other parts of this, quality education, affordable, clean energy, decent work and economic growth environments, industrial innovation and infrastructure. Buildings are part of that, and they should be. But maybe for some, they've been left out of the conversation. So now Rockwell Hall, our business school, is part of a purposeful conversation about how to push that performance frontier farther and out into the future to say that this is what we can do right now. And it's much better than what we were able to do decades ago. So, Teresa, uh, Trish, I'm sorry. Um, for me, you know, when I hear your question, can existing buildings save the world? And Beth and Robert, um, articulating on all of the value and we could do this for eight hours all day long the value from exist, uh, existing buildings i want to i want to challenge it a different way right i want to connect some dots and you know if we have people who are going to listen to the podcast and maybe be skeptics or they're not believers in climate change and they exist and there are people out there that just say that it just doesn't pay you know let's connect a few dots Buildings are using 40%, 47% of the energy in the United States. Passive House has solved that problem to the point where buildings will use 75 to 80% less energy than code-based buildings. That's There's white papers, there's research, there's case studies that we could show you on websites all over the, all over the world. So now all of a sudden, you think about that, right? That's the low-hanging fruit. We solved it with Passive House. How do existing buildings not save the world? 
this is the next renaissance. This is in a form of the next gold rush. The people who figure this out and identify ways to extract all the waste in our system from the built environment, which is massive, are going to be the ones that profiteer. So when you start thinking about markets that are out there for energy savings companies, commonly known as ESCOs, uh, that are out there extracting this waste and they're doing it um, through their own business models, and you figure out high-performance firms like architectural firms and contractors that are now developing whole business infrastructures around solving this problem. What we're seeing is a massive macro trend. Passive house is hitting the world like uh, a revolution, and it's 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 far outpacing any other sustainable certification program in the world right now in terms of its square foot and its delivery of, of uh, services. That's what's happening. People are figuring it out. They see the waste and they're starting to extract it. That's just on the delta of energy. What Beth and Robert are saying is there's so much more here than just energy, right? It's it's so much more than 75% of reduction of the worst performing energy in our market. It's it's about people. And how do we get to the people side of the conversation? Well, we get to the people side of the conversation by addressing environmental conditions, air quality, um, all of those metrics that, are, again, are well known and spelled out in our book. So I, I just wanted to challenge that if we have some capitalists in the, in the podcast that are listening to this or some people who just don't believe in doing it for an environmental reason, there's a capital reason to do this. Oh, yes. Very good point. All the way around, no matter what's your motivation, it just makes sense. Right. It, it would it would seem silly. It just didn't make so much sense. That's what we say all the time, Trisha. Thank you for that. It <laughs> <laughs> uh, doesn't matter which side of the where you are. It it's just, 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 just the math just works. <laughs> right. Um, well, thank you all so much for being here today. I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation. And uh, uh, I always end with. Uh, can you tell the audience what are you working on now? Yeah, great. I really appreciate the question because um, we've been asked a lot in the with the backdrop of COVID-19 and the coronavirus. We've been asked a lot about how buildings should be thinking about, um, you know, going back and, and bringing themselves back up. And and while we don't have a step by step or a checklist of things to do, what we can say is everything we talked about here. Um, also impacts the idea of how to limit and reduce the transmission of viruses in buildings. And in fact, there's an article that was put out just not very long ago in the spirit of sharing resources. Um, the, uh, the, the folks that made uh, the Fitwell Standard, the Center for Active Design in New York, just put out a paper recently that's called Five Ways to Optimize Buildings for COVID-19 Prevention. And it focuses on um, ventilation and uh, managing humidity and filtering indoor air. And um, you can you can either Google that or you can go to our uh, website, Aurels Group, A-U-R-O-S group.com. And we have a blog. We, we put it up as a blog um, recently because it's just really helpful. It's, it's short. It's not a long read, but it is chock full with um, resources and support of the claims that they make in the impact that these um, that these things can have on the way a building either uh, increases or decreases how viruses are transmitted throughout that building. So it's I think a really really great resource in in the current context. So Beth and I are um, business partners at the Oris Group, and um, 
what we're focusing on, in addition to um, what Beth has just highlighted, is connecting design and construction operations. So right now, we know that the technology exists to design great buildings, and we can build great buildings. What's missing is this connection. How do we turn buildings over and not just get performance on day one, but we get performance for 50 years? And that's taking all of that work that we did in the uh, simulated environment and modeling technologies and merging them into smart building technologies. And that's been a, a huge source of our focus on our projects for the last year or two is developing those solutions um, to connect that so that when we have a building that has an aspiration, that it's made an investment, that they're realizing that through operations for 50 years. And I'm continuing work on sort of a, a building's performance meta-analysis of papers that have been published over the last 20 years, purposely focused on human health and productivity performance metrics. And some of that hopefully will be starting to wrap, wrap up within the next six months. I also work on sustainable supply chain management, trying to help whole countries go carbon neutral. And I'm working with Dominica in the Caribbean on that. And more recently, I've been trying to put out some work on COVID-19 in terms of it being a material thing or materiality is something that's important to multinational companies in that it's something that within their strategic scope that they can control. It's something also that stakeholders want. COVID-19 is bringing to the forefront social sustainability issues for multinational companies. So I've been working on some aspects of this with COVID and more so along the lines of what other environmental, social, and governance or ESG performance metrics should companies be focusing on as we come out of the pandemic and look at an economic recovery and what the future will look like if we can focus more on these ESG performance metrics. Buildings are just part of that. Supply chains get a lot of, I guess, highlights right now in the newsreels in terms of how well they're not performing and getting people certain types of equipment or now everybody's getting things delivered to their homes. So this is sort of the, the cadre of things that I'm working on with different um, project teams in, I think, six different countries right now. So part of what we do is also field questions from people that want to reach out to us. We welcome those kinds of questions and look forward to conversations we can have in the future about buildings. Oh, excellent. Well, again, you know, thank you for being here on the show today. This has been a wonderful uh, discussion in light of, yes, the COVID-19 and uh where we can uh, start making some positive impacts for the future. Um, and for our audience, this book uh, is The Power of Existing Buildings, Save Money, Improve Health, and Reduce Environmental environmental Impacts by Robert Schroff, Craig Stevenson, and Beth Eckenrode, published by Island Press in 2019. And again, I'm Trisha Kaffer in sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books and Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. And thank you for listening.